Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the 100th episode of The Personal Finance Show. My special guests today are Tanya Hester and Kara Perez, the hosts of my favorite podcast, The Fairer Sense, and James Mombella, who is a CFP and associate planner at Grid202 Partners. Episode 100 isn't about someone's personal finance story. It's about an important personal finance topic. Today's topic is financial privilege. I'm really excited for you to hear the discussion between Tanya, Kara, James, and I, so let's jump right into that, and I'll be back with some closing words at the end of the episode. So I asked Tanya to kick off the discussion with her definition of financial privilege. The fundamental misunderstanding that people have with both regular privilege and financial privilege is the idea that it is somehow about never having faced any obstacle in your life. And people get really hung up on that because, of course, we've all had hardship. We've all had to struggle in some way. That's the human experience. What privilege truly is, is fewer barriers than others have faced. And so I think if you think of it that way, it's a little bit easier to understand without getting that kind of knee-jerk defensive reaction. So, for example, you know, a white male is generally in Western culture not ever going to face barriers because of his gender or the color of his skin. There could still be other factors. Perhaps he has a disability. Perhaps he came from a low uh, socioeconomic status background. You yes. know, there, there could still be other layers there. But it's just the idea of having fewer things that happen to you because of something that is not your choice, that it's something that is decided for you. So I know that's, that's a little bit of a, a long answer, but that's really what we're talking about. And so, you know, Kara and I on our podcast, The Fair Sense, talk a lot about how women are at a slight disadvantage or people of color, certainly, you know, kind of the more categories you fit into that are not white, male, able-bodied wealthy, the more layers of barriers you're going to face. And the more of those things that do describe you, the, the more privilege you have, essentially. But like I, as a white woman in the world, you know, certainly my gender is an issue at times, but I'm still a white person in a white supremacist society. And, you know, I grew up relatively middle class, so I don't have any sort of like class baggage uh, that's affecting me. So I still have a lot of privilege, even though I face the barrier of gender in many settings. So I think it's it's looking at the layers. And, and that's it, right? It, it's like you said, this is a white supremacist society. I always say for some reason, but it's it's because of history. History was full of terrible white men making all the rules and they decided who was a person and who wasn't and what was valued and what wasn't. And that's really, it's still being carried forward today because I think a lot of people would argue, well, we're all equal now. We all have the same privilege, right? Like we can all have jobs and live in positive financial circumstances, but it's not as simple as that. Yeah, it's definitely layers and intersections of things. Something that I think about a lot, especially in our current political climate in the United States, is who is making decisions that ripple out. So if you look at Congress, Congress is a lot of older white men. We have very few women, we have very few people of color, and they make laws that apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. And to use what James is saying about kind of the defaults, and I know you want to get into this, which I'm excited (laughs) about, but I often think about the laws that regulate bodies around health care. If you've never gotten a period, you might not think about why tampons 
shouldn't be taxed. Tampons yeah. are currently taxed as a luxury item. Let me tell you, periods are not luxuries. Okay? You don't get a choice. You don't get a choice. It's just it's happening. It's not a vacation. Exactly. <laughs> and this has become more and more of an issue, but I think it's such a good example because people who don't get periods don't think about it because it's not happening to them. And they're like, well, it's totally fine that we're going to charge you extra for that. And now I'm like, that's another financial burden for me to bear as a person who gets a period. And that's not cool. And why are they making, they're just, they just are in power. So they are making the rules. Let's say that you're a listener who is white male, you know, and, and relates to a lot of Congress. I, another way to look at it is is age, too, that we've got mm. predominantly older lawmakers making policy decisions that are going to affect many generations that they, fun, you know, frankly, won't have to live with the ramifications of. So if you're, for example, denying climate change and not making those changes, if you're in your 70s, you have, what, at most 20 or 30 years to live with that, whereas younger people may have to live with these these decisions they're making for 60, 70 years. So in a way, you know, that's, I think, just a way to kind of understand if, if you aren't yourself someone who's had your body legislated or yeah. been owned as property with your ancestors, things like that, you can still understand the idea of, like, why should old people be making all the choices for young people? <laughs> well, that, they shouldn't, and people shouldn't be making decisions for people who aren't like them. However, uh, you know, as a white male, this is why... Everything seems fine to me, right? Because the people making the decisions are making them for me. Like, we have a similar experience. But they don't know what it's like to be a woman, to be a person of color, to be, uh, you know, uh, you talk about your invisible disability. The layers of privilege and, and then, of course, sexual orientation and where you come from. You know, uh, none of us here are immigrants, right? And, you know, I've had uh, several immigrants uh, on the show, or, their, or at least their parents were, and they talk about how, given the exact same circumstance or exact same, like, uh, skill level, that maybe their parents were doctors coming from another country, still, that, because they came from another country, they don't have the privilege that a doctor who is from the country, whatever it is, U.S. or Canada, gets. And they don't really consider... So the financial impact of all of this. So all of these things have a price tag. And that's, I think, that's when I talk about somebody like, well, you know, financial privilege, they get the wealth problem. They get, maybe they even get the runway. Like, you had time to build up capital in your family and other people don't. But they don't get how all of these other levels of privilege affect your income or your ability to, to get income? Who wants to speak on that? Uh, I have something I want to say on that. Please. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Kara has something to say. But so my father is an immigrant, moved mm -hmm. here when he was 18 from the Dominican Republic with my grandfather. And then the rest of my family, I have five other aunts and uncles and my grandmother came over a few years later. Something that I think a lot of people don't think about is my uh, mother and grandfather on my mom's side opened a bank account for me when I was like six mm. because they understood the banking system. If you're an immigrant, there's a very good chance that you might not understand how to open a bank account in the United States. That's crucial to doing anything, to doing anything in your life. Mm. Not only that, you have to get a license, you have to get uh, various forms of identification. These are steps that you have to take before you can even begin earning money. If you don't have to do those things just because you were born here, you are already so far ahead of that person. That's a type of privilege. Now, I'm not saying everyone who's born here is a dick and all immigrants are great. You know, like, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's just different starting points. And that's really the, the definition of privilege. It's saying, 
I had to jump over these hurdles, you didn't. And that just means we're having different experiences in the world, and they need to be acknowledged so we can level the playing field. And people uh, seem to get threatened by privilege. James and I were talking about this earlier because they think somehow the white privilege is going to be taken away. And you can't, but you can't take away privilege. You can't earn it. You can't buy it, right? It's just there. And yeah, James, did you want to speak to that at all? Like in terms of you just have a different experience. Even if we are equal on all the other parts, you know, we're male, we're this or that, you have a different experience as, as a black man than I do. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say that, um, to your point, is that no one is talking about taking away privilege from anyone. No, yeah. When we're talking about leveling the playing field, as Kara said, we're talking about bringing other people into the fold. And what we should find is that we'll actually all be better off. I think one of my biggest inspirations during college years, I consider myself a feminist from just being a regular guy, was that I said, you know, this is half the population and they're not being allowed to achieve their full potential. And imagine how great the world would be if this half of the population achieve their potential. And this is and why James is on the show, even though we just met today. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so if you actually realize that the world will be a better place, you'll be a better person, we'll have a better society if we are more inclusive and give everyone a fair shot, then I don't think it needs to be about feeling attacked or feeling like you're going to lose anything or feeling like it was your, necessarily your fault. Now, it's your fault if you don't do anything. That's right. But, but, but again, you, you, you talked about history. I, I even, you talked about how it's no accident that things are this way. White men made the rules. If black men were making the rules, you know, society would be different. I, I, I'm going to just tell you, right, I'm gonna tell you <laughs> that right now. Society would be a little different. It'd be much easier to find, I bet it'd be, or let's say black women Let's ran ran charge. the world and yeah, and and, and built this country. I yeah. bet it'd be a lot easier to find the hair care products they're looking for in yeah. stores and, and all, all the stuff they need and makeup. I bet makeup would cater more to their skin tones. And, and so, but because history turned out the way it did, this is why we have these institutions and these structures. And so, the, the first step is, is is to be aware of it without getting defensive. And then, what are we going to do about it? I think people get hung up a ton on the concept of deserve of what do you deserve what do I deserve yeah this idea that somehow if we acknowledge that hey history has been unjust to a lot of people yes and I sort of bristle at even talking about history because this stuff is still happening today this is not the past we're talking about we still have a society that mm-hmm. wants to maintain the status quo of white male as the default and we could point to a ton of examples of that but that's just clearly true and anytime you talk to someone about privilege, you know, you run the risk of getting this reaction of defensiveness of, oh, you're telling me I don't deserve what I have or I don't deserve what I achieved. And I think if we could let go of that word deserve and talk instead about, like, instead of saying or, did you earn this or were you given this? Yeah. It's really and. It's, it's really both. It's yeah. both. Exactly. It's like, yes, you worked hard if you achieved something and there were other people who had all the same advantages you have who did not achieve that also. So you should be proud of that part, but just recognize that you didn't have as hard a road to get there as some other folks would have had, or you had more opportunities perhaps, even if they weren't visible to you. I mean, kind of getting back to the idea of legislating earlier, I think the biggest thing that I kind of wish for both our financial systems and our governmental systems is that people could just understand that we don't all have the same experience, that there are some things that are universal about the human experience, but there are a ton of things that aren't. 
And a lot of our issues come with assuming that everyone has a similar experience or everyone has similar opportunity. And if I could do this, then therefore anyone can. And that's just not true. Or, you know, like Kara was talking about with the tampons being taxed. I mean, like if you've never paid that tax, you don't think about it. And if you could just acknowledge, of, oh, hey, maybe like we should ask women about this, <laughs> see well, that, if their experience well, is different. That's the that's the default male. It's probably a good time to go to that because the default male aspect is that a lot of planning in different aspects of society are done based on you know not thinking that things have to be gendered. And the example that came up and when I was listening to it was uh, it was snow plowing, right? So how are we going to plow the streets of the road? Well, we should plow the ones, the main arteries of the streets uh, of, the, of the city first because then people can use them to get to work, right? And they didn't realize that by doing that, they enabled, the say, the men to get to work or whoever was going to work. And the people who stayed at home, typically the women at the time that they did this study, needed to go to daycare, needed to go to drop kids off at school, and they were getting in more accidents because things weren't plowed. They didn't even consider that gender was a thing to think about for plowing the roads. And when they did, it turns out, hey, it was actually a better overall economic decision to take care of the little streets first and then do the other ones after because there's a little more nuance, right? I, I love that example. And I think something that I find kind of frustrating is that people will often say, you don't have to make a political. It doesn't have to be about gender. It doesn't have to be about race. It doesn't have to be about sex. But inherently, everything is tied together, right? I yeah. mean, this is such a perfect example to say, well, snow plowing has nothing to do with gender. Snow plowing has nothing to do with who raises the children. But it actually very much so does. Yeah. And when we talk about privilege there are so many layers to it like we've said before and just think about how many different ways you can identify right i identify as a woman i identify as straight i identify as biracial as white passing i identify as a northerner <laughs> a yankee <laughs> yeah. like there are so many <laughs> there are i mean and that's just off the top of my head right like we can get into so many different things so of course within all of those layers of my identity are different privileges, different roadblocks, and different considerations. Mm -hmm. Like, I have a partner, T-Bone. He's a Texan. His parents are Southern Republicans. There are certain things we don't talk about at the dinner table because yeah. <laughs> they're going to get really upset, and I'm going to get really upset, and I'm not going to back down. <laughs> right? And that's like, if I just, when T-Bone comes to visit my family in New England, we can talk about those things. So yes. it's just like the location really dictates... Not necessarily so much the privilege, but what parts of it we can access and talk about and get involved with. And so I think that's really important to think about is not every moment of your life has to be like, I'm fighting white privilege. But if you are the only man in a room talking about something, maybe you could just raise your hand and be like, hey, I think it's really important that we get women in on this conversation or queer people in on this conversation or non-binary people in on this conversation. And that is an act of allyship in a situation that a lot of people find themselves in. Or if you're not comfortable enough to explicitly say that, you can just give people the time by not not jumping in and not, you know, it's really easy for me to have my voice heard in a room, right? It, it, and I, I didn't always realize that, right? You know, why are people listening to me? Well, that's just their condition to listen to me more. That's really what it is, isn't it? 
it's probably, you know, a fairly rational thought to think, okay, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if male is the, de the default? Yeah, yeah You know, question. we all understand that if you read, oh, he did this thing, we can all assume, okay, it could it's be he or she. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Great, fine. I mean, I would disagree with that, but <laughs> that's a totally reasonable position to take. But I think people don't understand the real, I mean, life and death ramifications of this. Okay. That we know, for example, that women are more likely to die in car accidents because airbags and seatbelts are calibrated for the standard male body. That was the other example of the, the default male. Yeah. Crash and, test and dummies. Exactly. Crash test dummies are 160-pound, 5'9 men, uh, and women, therefore, are more likely to die. Same with heart attacks. Women's symptoms for heart attacks are not the symptoms that doctors are taught in medical school that we yes. all read. Pain in the Isn't left arm, crazy? chest pain. Women are likely They're to Different. It differently. So women are more likely to be sent home if they go to the ER with a heart attack and to die because they don't get the treatment because they're not taken seriously. I mean, that's true across all of medicine that there's a big bias against mm. listening to women. But you can look at a ton of examples. Flat jackets in the military, uh, they're not designed to fit women's bodies They're because they're sort of one size fits all. That's not really a thing. And so a lot of women, if you get hit, you're more likely to die because the jacket didn't fit you properly. And there are a ton of examples like that where the male default is actually killing people. And it's not just this theoretical thing of, oh, women are being too sensitive or we're getting worked up about being called men. Like, I mean, yes, but that's not the important part. The important part is, like, this really means something in the real world. Uh, I learned about the heart attack thing on John Oliver a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, you did? Uh, just a couple weeks crazy. ago? Yeah. yeah. That's messed up. It's probably a good uh, time to, like, translate that this into finances, right? Like, so, of course, if somebody dies, uh, that's one way to really screw up finances. You know, I think people don't really realize, like, let, let's, let's look at the different uh, levels of privilege and how they might impact your ability to make. It's really ability to make money or to have opportunity to make money. Even just the cost of things. Yeah, you know, oh, there's yeah, obviously exactly. Something that gets talked about a lot is the pink tax. Yep. Women pay more for basic goods than men. Actually, you know what? I want to rephrase that. Women don't, we do pay more, but companies charge women more. Let's put the ownership on the companies. It's not like, oh, I really want to pay an extra yeah. 169 for <laughs> yeah, this. It's not women's cream. fault. Exactly. Companies pay women of color less. They pay queer women less, you know, again, these layers of identity. And so, again, if you are just earning less, okay, well now how you spend or how you save or how you plan for the future is going to be impacted. I know a lot of people, I have a company called Bravely where we work with women specifically on getting their financial lives together, right? And a lot of them will say, well, I can't, I can't wait till I can save, but I can't save yet because I don't have enough money coming in. And I think that is often put, well, you need to negotiate more or something like that. But really, again, let's zoom out at and look at the situation as a whole and say, there are systems at play here where it's not just individual decisions that, that affect the whole situation at hand. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, I think I know what you're saying, because we were talking about this earlier as well. It's not like if somebody says, I don't see gender, I don't see race. It's, it doesn't even matter what they explicitly say. It's the, it's the system and it's the, it's the culture that makes it so that maybe the woman of color has not even made it to the interview or not even in the situation to ask for promotion or raise or anything. It's also just simply not true. If you look at psychological research, people who say they're colorblind or they don't see gender... It's not true, eh? It's not true. <laughs> it, it, it's impossible to, to tune that stuff out. I mean, we, we see those things. 
it's the question of what do you do with them, but saying I'm colorblind or, I mean, I'm going to go there. Like when people say all lives matter instead of black lives matter, I mean, what they're essentially saying is I want to erase your experience and I'm not going to acknowledge that you have a different experience than I do, which is probably in many ways much worse. And so um, this is where I can get real angry, but... Um, but please. I, please. I, but I, I think <laughs> it's just this, this arrogance of thinking that we understand everyone's experience as though it's our own. We simply don't. And so if people are asserting something of, oh, it's harder for women or it's harder for people of color, like we just need to listen to that and not say, oh, no, well, I just don't see color. <laughs> so the mentality of, uh, let's take the U.S. as an example, right? Capitalist. All you got to do is work hard. <laughs> and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Sorry, I'm triggering everyone at the table here. <laughs> and you'll you can be successful. And it's your choice to stay in a you know low income situation. All you got to do is make certain moves or go back to school, etc., etc., etc. This is not as simple as it sounds. I would also. <laughs> I'm just curious to hear. So you know, I'm I'm white passing. Tanya's white. You're, James, you're a black man here. So something yes. that I think about a lot, a level of my privilege, is how angry I can get about stuff in public. And people are like, oh, yeah, like a sassy white lady. You know, like people, are, or they're like, oh, shut up. But it is a level of my privilege that yes. if I were darker skinned, I'd be an angry black woman. And, so, and the police would get called. And the police would get called. Yes, I can freak out on a police officer, and I don't worry that they'll shoot me. I really don't. Not that I've ever done that, but... I, I could. <laughs> I've never been Let's in that situation. Let's not test it in Washington, yeah, D.C., okay? Um, but I'm super curious. Yes. So I think about that as a level of I actually have kind of an obligation to be the person who pushes because of my privilege. And I'm just curious a little bit for James, like, do you ever get nervous about being like the angry black guy and feel like I can't step into this conversation or this space because the negative ramifications will come back on me? Yeah, I think that that's a big thing in the work environment. So um, right now, I, I am fortunate to be working with people who either look like me or, or at least understand my background and, and give me space to be who I am. But most people, most people can't do that. In my past experience in my career, I was, I fit the typical experience of a financial advisor, which is a mostly uh, white firm. And I did feel like I needed to, to be diplomatic and, and, and to not be the angry black person, even when I felt like I had the right to, because I didn't want to be put in that box. And uh, and, I, and I'll say for, for our clients, the, the black women who are our clients experience the worst with that. Mm. Uh, when it comes to, you know, so they get it both ways, the racism and the sexism in the workplace. And so they feel like they have a, uh, they can't speak up when they need to. And so they end up getting the short end of the stick in a lot of cases when it comes to promotions, when it comes to how much they're getting paid. So that's one of the things that we we try to work with them on is advocating for themselves in, in the workplace. I think that's terrific advice, and I'm glad that you give that. But I think whenever folks give advice generally, like we, we really ought to actually look at the facts. And we know from research that... You know, the standard advice of women are earning less because we ask for less and we don't negotiate as much. The data show that women actually ask for more money just as often. I don't know the racial breakdown, and I would totally imagine that black women are asking less often because of all the stuff we're talking about, all the societal baggage. But women in general are asking for more just as often as men, but they're less likely to get it. And so this advice of women need to negotiate harder, ask for more, it's... 
it's only helpful to an extent. It's helpful for the people who are not asking yeah, for more. Just for that. But there are tons of women who are, and they're getting rebuffed, and their colleagues, many of whom are less qualified, are getting more because they're male asking for it. And so that's the stuff that I think is often invisible to people. Like if you're a white male and you've only gone into performance reviews on your own with yourself, you don't understand that this can happen. And I, I don't think any of us would say, I, actually I won't speak for all of us, but the problem isn't, oh hey, you have a limited life experience. It's once you understand that other people have a different experience, then you have a responsibility to act differently and to be a better ally. Rather, you know, it's, it's like, I'm not going to blame someone for having been born a white man. Like, that's not your choice. <laughs> it's what do you do yep. once someone says, hey, my experience is different and harder. Yeah, I didn't know about the uh, about women advocating for themselves just as much. I learned something today. Aww. Aww. <laughs> it's a great day. James. Yeah, I think well, you well mentioned to me when we first met just a, just a just a minute ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in person. In person, yeah. yes. Uh, obviously online, we go way back. But you said that you had been listening to earlier episodes of our podcast, The Ferris Sense, yeah. where Tanya and I have our partners on, who guys, are both yeah. white men. And I re-listened to one recently, where T-Bone, my partner, I had asked him, you know, are you comfortable identifying as a feminist? And he said, yeah, definitely. And then I said, are you comfortable calling someone out if they say something like sexist or racist? And he was all, oh, it depends on the context, which I really understand. I really understand. Uh, but that is, again, to go back to the responsibilities of privilege to say, okay, well, I'm not going to be socially penalized or financially penalized if I bring something up or... Like in T-Bone's case on the show, what we talked about was he was talking about his parents or his brothers. So obviously, he's related to them. Uh, they've known me for five years, which is a long time, but like, you know, we don't really, we don't have necessarily the intimacy that he has with his family members. So it's going to land more if he says to his dad, yes. hey, that was pretty sexist, rather than me being like, hey, that was really sexist. <laughs> so I think also, too, that that's something that I really, really want people to take away from this is, again, you don't need to be out there blocking the streets saying listen to my roar you know yeah. it's it can really be in small bite-sized components look at the data talk to the people around you who are living different experiences and just hear from them and then think how can i be on the right side of history here and and i think that then that's what we should talk about next this podcast specifically is one of the ways like this stuff doesn't affect me personally the uh, people of color stuff or the, the gender stuff but I am talking about it because I realize it's important for society because it's not as simple as somebody's walking in two people are sitting there in an interview and someone says well if I hire them I'm going to pay them less and if I hire them I'm going to pay them more it's not like that like like you were alluding to Tanya it's it's systemic there's like a lot of years that white men have been in power and that women weren't even people under the law and people of color were not people under the law and that means a lot to this whole the current situation right so when people think okay well we both have the same amount of money in our bank account well that, that that's not what this is about there's so many things this built in so the more that we we talk about it as white people as men we realize what's happening the more we can be like, okay, you know, this. I don't know about this gender pay gap, but I believe that it exists because how could it not, given where we're coming from? And just the whole concept of, of uh, acknowledging things that you never see. I, I will never see someone sexually harass my wife, but she has been sexually harassed. 
I'll, but I'll never see that, right? Because when I'm with her, guys will not do that, right? Because of some weird bro code. <laughs> but then they'll claim they don't know what it is and they don't know that they're doing it, but they won't do it in front of you, which tells you that they do know what it they is do, and when they're doing it. Right? Like oh, there's so... <laughs> Well, there's so much going on there. And so yeah. that, that, this applies to everything. I don't know what it's like to be a, a black man on a daily basis. To be, not be able to speak up or be passionate about something for fear of, of retaliation, I don't know what that's like. Yeah, so what, like, other than talking about it like this, like, what could, a, what could a, an employer do to make sure that they're not doing this, like, by accident or systemically? I think a big thing to do, especially if you're in a position of power in an organization, is actually just to do a salary analysis okay. or a pay analysis. Yeah. Salesforce did a big analysis, and they actually thought that they didn't have a pay gap. Yes. And they looked, and they did. And then they acquired some more companies, and then they later had to do another one, and they found they had a pay gap. Uh, Google recently did some research into this. I mean, essentially everyone we know of who's done a salary analysis has found a pay gap. And often it's even among people who are trying not to. Like, for example, a large school district in California said, well, hey, what would be fair? The fair thing would be every candidate who comes in, give them a 10% raise over their prior job. So it's just a blanket policy that can't preference anyone, okay. except that because of the wage gap, people were coming in at very different levels. Of course. So white men came in with more, yeah. women of color came in with the least, and you've got everybody somewhere in between. And so they were just perpetuating an existing wage gap in an attempt to do the right thing. So I think you have to actually look at the data and not just assume like, oh, well, we're fair. We pay people what they're qualified. But actually look at it and you'll probably be surprised and then fix it and actually pay people the same. If people are doing equal work, regardless of what someone earned coming in, pay them equally. Yeah, I also think you have to make, what you need to do is try and make things as equitable as possible. And how do we do that? A great thing to do in an interview process is to make sure that you're asking all the candidates the same questions and not letting your personal biases creep in. And now that's not just like, well, I like white dudes better than black women. What it is, though, is if a candidate comes in, if I'm, I'm from New England, right? I live in Texas. If I'm interviewing someone for Bravely and I see that they're from Connecticut, I went to college in Connecticut, that could bias me towards them. Oh, where'd you go? You went to UConn? I went to Wesleyan. That's so amazing. We were 30 minutes. What year you graduate? Do you know Susie so-and-so? All of a sudden, yeah. I feel really bonded to this person. Sure, sure. Did I ask the person who I interviewed before them, you ever been to Connecticut? Probably not. <laughs> you know, like, And so it's really small things like that where at the end of the day you can say, well, I just liked that person better. Okay, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Is that person qualified? Did we have as equal an opportunity for everyone to show their best self and skills as possible? So again, it's less, I think people get really frustrated because they're like, well, just give me the checklist to solve sexism. And it's like, well, yeah. that doesn't exist. <laughs> you really have to be thinking in the individual moments and situations where you're at. And I think it's just, again, it goes back to saying, I haven't had this experience. That doesn't mean it's not valid and real. Why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, and, and I would echo what's been said is that what's key is having objective criteria for both hiring and promotions. Yes. So that there's less of this, oh, I like this person, and that's why I hired them. And you have someone who is nothing to do, who's not physically present in the interview, checking to make sure that you're that you're sticking to those objective metrics. Okay. I mean, talking about the financial planning industry, you know, me and my colleagues, we want to do our part to help close the racial wealth gap. Which anyone who who if you haven't heard of that, by I should probably know the exact year, but it's by 2050, <laughs> I believe. Black wealth in America is projected to be at zero, or maybe slightly negative by that point. 
And so one of the things we want to do, not just in helping our clients, we want to get more black advisors in the industry so that there's more people like us to help black households learn you know, how to manage their money better. And so to just give you an example of how bad it is, there, um, you know, black people are about 10 to 12 percent of the population in the United States, but only 1.5 percent of certified financial planners are black. Okay. So that's about 1,800 when they first published the numbers, wow. uh, which was about a year ago. So, yeah, I'm one of, in fact, there's, there's four of us at our firm. We're four of the 1,800. Of the 1,800. That yeah. is cr- and, and how many yeah. people in the U.S.? Oh, wait, 250 million? 350 million. 350 million. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so wow. I, I, I think that having these, these objective measures in both hiring and promotion will help the industry become more diverse, which will then help more people be served and get this, this much-needed money help. Well, yeah, if anyone was uh, uh, wondering if there's a gap of any kind, and that's an example right there. It's a perfect example. Because we were talking about earlier, we, we stay in our bubbles. It's like, you know, I was given a choice between this black friend and this white friend, and I chose the white friend, right? It's like that's not always how it works, right? You kind of have to step out and make things happen and, and be outside of your bubble to even get exposed to someone who you might be able to consider a friend. So if it's that hard to make a black friend, how hard would it be, you know, to find a, a black financial advisor if you're black, you know, when there are only 1,800 in the entire country? And then how are you going to feel comfortable about your money being managed if you're able to save up money at all? Because the culture is also very different about that, too. There's so many differences. And we, we just need to be aware of this. Like I said, when we're, when we're having podcast interviews, when we're writing about things... Uh, I think, Tanya, you mentioned uh, writing something about uh, DIY stuff and then people who are disabled, uh, like, uh, like differently abled, wrote and oh, said... Oh, no, say disabled. disabled. That's actually okay. the so preferred disa- term. Disabled, yep. sorry. Yeah. So people are disabled, wrote and said, I can't do any of this stuff. Totally. And I was just going to add that, that, you know, we're talking a lot today about gender and race, but yes. there are also other things to yes, be aware more of. Like, layers. Yeah, there are wage and wealth gaps with people with disabilities, which disabled people is not an un-PC thing to say. Okay, that is good, our, the preferred term. Uh, we are not differently abled. We lack some abilities. <laughs> we are disabled. Uh, that's the community's preferred thing. But also, fat people are paid less and have less wealth, are really? discriminated against in the job market. And you also have, you know, you have higher rates of obesity in communities of color. So then you're adding that on top of everything. And you also raised an important issue, which is I think if you have gone through life as a white person, and I say this as a white woman too, I think it's it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who the system has mistreated to an extent that there's a lack of trust. And I think yeah. like we need to take that into account. If people will say, well, why doesn't everybody have a bank account? Or why didn't everyone go to college? Or things like that. Like often you just, like even as a white woman, there are a lot of institutions in our society that I inherently don't trust and Mm. that's based on personal experience and we need to take that into account too of not assuming that everyone has equal access period but also understanding that a lot of that is because of centuries of injustice that pile up and make people say like well I don't want to engage with that because that's bad for me yeah and that stuff matters yeah that's a great point the uh the number of black and hispanic uh individuals in the country who are unbanked is, of course, much higher than white individuals. And, well, you know, why should we trust banks? I mean, we all know that Wells Fargo were very directly involved in 
selling predatory loans to yeah. black households yeah. explicitly. We know this. Oh. Now, a lot of people, I'm sure, don't because it's not in the interests of the people who really have power in society to make sure people know that. Mm. But those of us who do know, maybe we don't want to be in there at all because we don't want to have, we don't want to even risk being taken advantage of in any way. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation about privilege. And, and we all seem to implicitly understand that if somebody comes from wealth, they might have a leg up when they're trying to you know, get a job or whatever or uh, make a business. So you know, uh, privilege of we- having wealth makes wealth. And if you come from poverty, harder to get out. That's the privilege that I think everybody understands. But all the other privilege, I think, is really kind of lost unless you talk about it or experience it and it has financial impact as well and i mean james was talking about you know uh you your parents had money but you know maybe they didn't have all of the education to manage that money well enough right yeah yeah i think um so the reason i got into the industry was i don't have this the story on the upper end of hey my my dad was in the industry and he got me into it or or something like that or you know i went to this super elite college and just fell into it i also don't have the i was born in the project so my parents were middle class yeah you know my mom made six figures they, they had some money but they had no idea how to manage it they had no structure of of what to do with it they came from families where you know they didn't talk about money i, I think money is taboo for most families in america but i think there's an extra layer of it for people of color so they really had no idea how to manage it and they and they, they both you know fell victim to a predatory loan in the mid 2000s when they were when they were when those were going those were going out to everyone in communities of color and in other places and they lost their home in 2014 i say they cuz i was i was almost done college at that point i have experienced not necessarily going hungry every day but just money not being there when we necessarily needed it most and it and as my parents income went up it seemed to always go towards something even though you think well Let's just keep our lifestyle where it was before and let's use the money on important things. So I said, you know, I really want to have a different life for myself. How can I learn how to keep money for myself when I need it and not have it be lost uh, without an explanation for where it went? And the more I learned, the more I realized that other people lack that. I just said, well, why don't I make a living teaching that to other people? Yeah. So I think that's what all of us are are trying to do right oh like you know i'm i'm becoming a insolvency counselor you know helping people go through bankruptcy and because i went through that myself and you just want to do whatever you can to stop the cycle and uh, so i wanted to talk about this today because it's important and we all have even though it seems like we don't we all have a role in this and i'm so glad that i could get my favorite podcast hosts to come on and talk about this the fairer sense everyone should listen there's so many like Everything that we've talked about, plus like all the nuance that you could possibly imagine, because it is there's so many things, and the more like we're just like open your mind to learning about other people and what they're going through, and I you know like as James said, your life will be better. And what's coming up with the Fair Sense? So you got a new season coming on? We've got season four sometime this fall, <laughs> fall okay. 2019, okay. fall winter 2019. Sure. Stay tuned. But uh, we are available anywhere on the internet, anywhere you can get your podcast, Fair Sense, C-E-N-T-S. It's a money pun. <laughs> In case you didn't get that. <laughs> well, it's my, it's my favorite podcast. And if you think you, like, oh, maybe I'm a feminist, 
uh, I don't know, or you're <laughs> like you're gonna either be one or not at the end. I mean, if you're not, I don't want to talk to you. But you know, you're gonna learn so much, uh, like that, because you you don't know this stuff unless you're experiencing it or somebody talks about it. Yeah, and just like privilege, I think the term feminism is widely misunderstood. Yes. It really just means, do you think women are equal? Yeah, <laughs> and people like vilify the word. Like, it's like, you're, I have to become a woman or, or put on women's clothing or something. Oh, no. Or it like, we hate, hate men and down men, with right? It's not about hating it's men. It's not about that at all. The patriarchy is not about, demolishing the patriarchy is not about destroying men. Feminism is not about hating men and privilege is not about shaming someone yeah, for well, having what they well, have. Bo and I talked on the way here about how I discovered that feminism could actually save men from these just horrible uh, psychological and emotional challenges that that we have that the patriarchy actually places on us and we don't even realize that the toxic masculinity that we cling to is actually causing these problems and we could actually be happier have better relationships if we subscribe to what feminism tries to teach us and so that, that's key. So let's set the record straight on exactly what we're talking about here. I think James has a new favorite podcast uh, yeah. coming up. I will definitely check it out. <laughs> and we have an episode on toxic masculinity that is one of my favorites, and, and it's a good one to get into this exact topic of how our constructs of gender and the patriarchy harm men. It's not just about keeping women down. It's that, yeah. bad for men, too. Yeah, I just want to give a shout-out to another podcast. It's called Armchair Experts, Dax Shepard. If you haven't listened, okay. I really recommend it. They're long episodes, so some of them are like two hours, three hours long. But So Dax Shepard is this actor. He's married to Kristen Bell, yeah. who's in Without a Paddle. And <laughs> he is a problematic straight white man uh like <laughs> and he talks a lot about that he's but i really love when i first started listening to it i was like i don't know about this because because mm, i don't agree with him on everything but he has grown and evolved and educated himself so much and he gets into the topic of privilege in some way shape or form pretty much every he interviews other famous people so like he did one with joy bryant who is this black actress uh, she played his wife on parenthood where they talk about race a lot, and that was great. And then he did one that I listened to recently with uh, Cal Penn, who is from Harold and Kumar. Yeah, yeah. I guess he plays Kumar. I've never actually seen the movie, so well, I, th- I'm not I think sure that's yeah, 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 yeah. He plays Kumar. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they talk a lot about race and stuff, but I just think it's a really great way to ease into this conversation if you're feeling like, oh my god. But on this uh, Cal Penn episode. Dax says, you know, I really don't think white privilege is about taking away stuff from white men. It's about bringing everyone up to the level that white men are currently Absolutely. at. And I Absolutely. think that's really, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what we all want, I think. So. Like, no one would ever explicitly say that they don't want that. No, but I do think a lot of people are, are fundamentally afraid, and I think this goes with a lot of things, not just with the questions of gender and race, but also immigration, for example. Yeah. This false notion that it's a zero-sum game. That right. when immigrants come in, they take jobs. It's like, well, actually, when there are more people, you need more people to serve more people. It creates jobs. Same with bringing more women into the workforce, more people of color. I mean, more opportunity for more people just creates more opportunity overall. It's not a fixed set of things. And giving other folks some of the power that you have is going to take away from you. It just, it really, truly will create more for everyone. And we're all immigrants, by the way, unless you're a Native American or First Nations Canadian. Uh, we're all immigrants, so I don't know how, like, I, there's a billboard running in Canada right now to stop immigration, and I cannot believe it. And I just don't understand how we can be so afraid, right? It's based on a false set of facts. Yeah, yeah that's it. it. False false premise. And, uh, okay, so that's a, 
That's a good place. Issue. Yeah, we'll get we'll get back. We'll, we'll get the gang back together to talk about immigration. That's right. We'll get we'll get. There. <laughs> That's why I was like, I'm glad we have a bit more than a half an hour. And thank you for staying for a bit longer because I couldn't see us just getting all this done in 25 minutes. And this is my hundredth episode, and so Woo-hoo! it's very important for me. Nice. And I wanted it to be meaningful. So thanks so much. Thank yes. you so much. This was wonderful. Th- thanks You're for wonderful. having me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks again to Tanya, Kara, and James for being on my 100th episode. And thanks to the National Endowment for Financial Education for sponsoring the live podcast recording at FinCon 2019. My goal with this episode was to encourage you to think about privilege and how it affects your life and your finances. Most people understand obvious financial privilege. If you come from a wealthy family, you have an easier time than someone who doesn't come from money. Having to work as a teenager to pay bills is very different than choosing to work as a teenager to buy the things your parents won't buy you. Graduating with student loans puts you in a very different financial starting position from someone whose parents saved up and paid for their schooling. Working to save for retirement is very different from working to pay your bills and make the minimum payments on your credit cards. But as we discussed in the episode, there are also less obvious layers of privilege, like your gender, the color of your skin, or whether you're an immigrant, which may affect your ability to make money. Like Daryl Brown from episode 93 of the show, who didn't think that anyone would want him to be their financial advisor because he's black. Or Nico Barrowweed from episode 67, whose parents were both doctors, but were discriminated against financially because they had immigrated from the Philippines. There's still a lot of work to be done to increase indigenous people's access to culturally relevant financial education resources as Bettina Schneider and I discussed in episode 95. Women are 80% more likely to live in poverty in retirement than men, as Sejal Patel mentioned in episode 77. This isn't surprising if you consider that women only gained the right to open a bank account in the 1960s. The Equal Credit Opportunity Act was only enacted in 1974, which made it unlawful for a creditor to discriminate against any applicant on the basis of race, gender, religion, national origin, marital status, or age. Think about what I just said for a second. 45 years ago, it was so normal to financially discriminate against anyone who wasn't a white male that they actually had to make a law to tell financial institutions to stop being racist and sexist. On the other hand, white men have been able to open bank accounts and get credit since banks were invented hundreds of years ago. And it's not like everyone stopped being racist and sexist on the day that the law came out. As we discussed in the episode, this discrimination still exists, though it's not as explicit as it once was. I've never met anyone who doesn't think this is a problem. There isn't anyone I know who would explicitly say that they don't believe everyone should have equal opportunity to make money and build wealth. So let's do something about it. Let's talk about it on podcasts like this. If you have the opportunity to use your privilege for good, to help someone who might have less advantages than you, do that. Remember that privilege is just perception. There's no logical reason why gender or race or all of the other differences you mentioned should impact your ability to make money. It's all in our heads. And to stop it, we need to change our thinking and our actions. So that's it for my 100th episode. I'll be back in November 2019 with new episodes, so if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do that now, so you know when new episodes are up. If you like this episode, check out the other 99 episodes, and please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you have any questions or just want to say hello, you can always email me at bow at bowhumphreys.com.